Welcome to Anton Teaches Pack AI, episode three. Anton is live from NeurIPS, which I'll let him explain what that is in a second. Today, we're talking about a logical calculus of the ideas imminent in nervous activity, which is the oldest paper by very, very far that we'll have gone over. It's a fascinating one. It's the first paper that I don't think was explicitly written for AI, and we can get into that that as well. Um, but Anton, first of all, how are you? How's NeurIPS? What is NeurIPS? Let's start there. Uh, well, I'm doing really well. NeurIPS is probably one of the biggest ML AI conferences in the world. And this is the first one back sort of since peak COVID. So there's thousands of people here in New Orleans um, attending. And so it's, yeah, it's been pretty hectic few days catching up with researchers from all around the world, um, seeing what kind of work everyone's up to, what people are thinking, given, you know, the sort of advances over the last two years. And it's particularly interesting because a lot of the really big advances over the last, um, happened in the last two years, which were pandemic years. So it was harder to meet up in person and, and you know, sit down and discuss and really get everyone's perspective. So, um, and of course, you know, being hosted in New Orleans, there's no shortage of things to do and, and places to go. Um, so it's been, it's been a really energetic time. It's been really interesting. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's been great to see, especially some of the work that's come out over the last few years in context and be able to speak to the researchers and see how they're thinking. And I mean, I, you know, I, I ran into Ian Lequin yesterday. That was pretty cool. There's a picture of me and him uh, up on Twitter somewhere. Very cool. Um, so that was, also, that's also nice. And I think, I think Emmanuel Macron is here for some reason today. I don't know if it's to do with Europe's, but he's in New Orleans. Um, I saw the, I saw the picture of him and Joe Biden eating ice cream together. So he's in the country, maybe just for ice cream and decided to, to swing by New Orleans. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I've been too busy playing with chat GPT to do really anything else or to keep abreast of, of world events. But that's been really fascinating. And we're going to talk mm. about today the history of AI winters, just like, you know, maybe people are familiar with the idea of crypto winters. There's been a solar winter. There's, you know, winters in any technology that people get sufficiently excited about. AI winters are, are pretty OG. We're talking 1960s here. We're going to go That's right. way, way. The original technology winter. That's what all the other winters are named for is the AI winter. And that's named after atomic winters. I think I, I, I came across in the notes. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, like nuclear winter was, was probably the root of that given the sixties and, you know, the sort of things that were top of mind for people at that time. Yeah. And, and now here we are. 60 years later, and it feels like some of the things that people thought were imminent back then are kind of starting to come true and maybe not even fully yeah. now. What are you seeing at, at NeurIPS in terms of like, what are people excited about next? It feels like things are moving so, so, so fast. What are people excited about next? Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually think a large fraction of the community is more or less holding its breath um, to see exactly what the next breakthrough is going to be. AI research is in this state where it's a little bit secretive right now. Like GPT-4 is rumored, but nobody really knows what it's going to be and what the difference will be between it and GPT-3. People are saying like, oh, it's going to have much longer context windows, or it's going to have, you know, many, many more parameters or something like that. Uh, and then there's always rumors about someone working on so-called language model self-play, which is, which isn't something we've seen too much of yet, although we've seen hints of it. Where, you know, you, you get the model to improve, not by just training it on a large corpus of text, but actually to sort of talk to itself and then have like some kind of a score for how well it's doing. 
It's an idea that's been around. It's very difficult. Nobody's really sure how to do it unless there's a lab who's doing it secretly. And so a lot of the conversations that I've been having are like kind of, you can kind of watch people when they like kind of suss out whether or not they have something secret behind closed doors or not. Sort of catch glimpses of that a little bit by what people say they're allowed to talk about and what they're not allowed to talk about. I think overall, people are waiting to see what the next breakthrough is going to look like. We are at probably peak LLM right now. Uh, and GPT-4 is probably going to push that a little bit further. And of course, like you said, ChatGPT just dropped pretty recently, which is a version of a large language model trade specifically can be conversational. Whereas, you know, the sort of generic GPTs are um, just text completion. These ones are like intended to put you in dialogue. So yeah, I think, I think it's just, it's, it's a lot of anticipation. It's a lot of, it's a lot of excitement for possibilities. I think especially like everyone's been talking about like audio is possibly the next like breakthrough space. We've seen a little bit of that with whisper and people have been talking about generative music for a while. The attitude that seems to prevail with music is it's more of a data and copyright issue. I think people seem to think that the models are like, we'll probably figure out how to actually do it, but getting the yeah. data that's hard. That's, that's kind of the mood. It's also interesting to swing. So for a long time, especially, you know, when the first deep learning breakthroughs happened in that sort of mid two thousands, this field was dominated very strongly by results in, in image processing in computer vision. And now the pendulum has definitely swung the other way. We've got lots of results in, in text and language to some extent as well, like sort of agentic stuff is, is around still, but it's taken a backseat to look at what these language models can do. Look at, look at how far we can go. So, along with the sort of bread and butter research, which, which, which continues to go to like, actually understand and figure out the structure of neural networks and figure out like, how do we make them better? What kinds of ideas or architectures or constraints might change their behaviors, things like that. It's, it's yeah, there's a lot of that going on still too. And so you mentioned essentially it's, you know, ChatGPT is a shiny new interface on the same old model. And I, I've seen a few tweets of people saying like, look, UI is really important in AI because you need to be able to interact. It feels to me like the results are also better. Is that just DaVinci mm -hmm. 3? It feels like the, the actual content is better as well. Then it might just be that it's easier and I can ask it more questions and so I'm seeing good things, but like there's really not a lot of the stuff that we've talked about uh, that happens when I go into playground where it like mm -hmm. repeats itself or, it, mm -hmm. you know, feels like it really knows what I'm asking for at this yeah. point. Yeah, I think some of that tuning has definitely been put in to it. I think some of that has come at a cost where you'll notice that it tends to not want to give specific answers to a lot of questions. It'll be like, well, here are like some categories you can think about that might be answers to your question. It tends to be very cautious. Like uh, it's very easy to sort of trigger the safety bounds. It is. Uh, in the moderation I've, get, I've gotten a lot of Look, I'm just, I'm just an AI. I'm here to help you answer yeah. specific questions. I don't touch the internet. Yeah. Although, you know, Riley Goodside has been doing his usual good work and trying to jailbreak it. Um, and I, I sort of play with that a little bit itself. I actually turned its like browser settings to on, but I think for what I found out, it only really quote unquote browses the corpus that was trained on. It doesn't actually go out into the live internet. Um, why does it not go out into the live internet? Because everyone's saying now that this is a, a Google killer. But if it can't do things within the past two years that live on the internet, then it's not a particularly great Google killer. It's really not a trivial problem to go out and do that. 
right? Like, I think that's actively an active area of research. I think there's a number of companies who are looking into that specifically. I think OpenAI is also specifically like doing a browser driver type of thing, um, where it does information retrieval as well as this kind of pre-trained model. Um, I think the answer to that is just like, it's hard. It's not what this release is about. Um, and also of course there are the usual concerns about, okay, well, now you've just given everybody a spam bot. Right. Oh. The, other, the other part to not forget is like, this seems like magic, um, but behind the scenes, like the GPUs are on fire. Yeah. There's like it's, inference for this model is very expensive. We are now at a point where there are enough large models in the world that we're getting bottlenecked on global GPU capacity. Like fighting to find like available GPUs is a big deal right now. And like, sometimes you, you know, you'll see sometimes that. Um, it'll load shed if there are too many people trying to get onto it yep. at once, it'll like stall you and put you in a queue and stuff. Doing just that, like just doing the chat part is non-trivial, but you can imagine the sort of compute required for the current models that we have to, to go out there and do browsing on top of that. Uh, cause now, you know, it's all kinds of extra, all kinds of extra things you have to think about. Yeah. Right now. So yesterday I got it to, to take in really, really short blog posts cause I was token limited. And if, if I'm asking it to summarize blog posts, then whatever, for whatever reason, it was like 500 word blog posts were kind of the max yeah. that I was able to ingest, but yep. I did it and I'm not a programmer and, you know, I was able to copy something into Replit and build a program. Now I'm trying to figure out, can I get it to train on my writing so that I just don't have to write anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I like, it gave me something, you know, like we're installing TensorFlow and in, in Replit and like, we'll see if I can actually, uh, where I'm stuck right now is the time of writing. And by the time people see this, I will either have figured this out or not, but is just giving it my credentials for Substack because Substack is blocking it from, from pulling my blog post down. Otherwise I need to figure out what file format to put it in. But like, mm. if my dumb ass could, by using this thing in 10 minutes, figure out how to train a model on my own writing, like that's insane. Um, and so yeah, it's, I hope that they get the GPUs that they, that they need, cause this has been a ton of fun. It does open up a lot of that for people. How do you do something? It's a good question to ask it. Um, unless it's particularly technical, then it really likes to equivocate. Like if, you know, I've been trying by like just probing it with like math related stuff and it's like, oh, you might consider X, Y, or Z method. I'm like, well, okay, but like, tell me which one. Yeah. And then it, it really doesn't want to answer that. Um, so it's a weird trade-offs which is great so there's still room for human excellence but for you know me going to relearn the basics it feels kind of silly unless i want to like make a career out of this and become excellent no it's 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 really good it's good that you can like you can just guide the average person through what they actually have to do i think it's actually sometimes you see these posts online about like i'm trying to learn programming but this stuff is so frustrating like i i, I do things and it like breaks in unexpected ways that i don't understand um, and I think for the models like this, that can like hold your hand, even if you're the average person, um, and help you get, like, help you do what you actually want to do without having to, like you say, ingest like everything makes it, makes it really valuable. And I'm, I'm looking forward to see what, like, you know, we already have copilot, but something that can actually an on-ramp to learn programming or to like, just get certain jobs in programming done. I think that would be a really valuable thing. Uh, in, in my opinion, it's a completely reasonable reaction to be like, I don't want to learn programming. I just want to get a thing done and then programming is like when you think about it when you take a step back and like look at what you're actually doing it's kind of an insane activity yeah you're like you're like learning to talk to the computer in its own language and the computer's like this insane little goblin monster who 
who like speaks inscrutable words and does things that unless you like know why it's doing what it's doing, you just don't understand. So I think it's completely reasonable for most people to just bounce off of that. And maybe this kind of model provides a better on ramp. I wonder if this, this might be a dumb analogy, but you know, it, it's just, I guess the history of programming is adding abstraction layers. We're not writing machine code to build programs. And this is another abstraction layer. I, I think that I'm learning as much seeing what messes up and seeing what it does as yeah. I've been learning when I was doing the hundred days of code on Replit. And like, yeah. one of the cool things is like just taking the full error message, dumping it in and being like, what does this mean? And how do I fix it? And then it'll tell me how to fix it. And then it works. Um, yeah. And so like that, that's also a learning process too, as I'm going through and figuring out what, what's broken. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's really valuable and helpful for that. And I think that it could actually be valuable and helpful for that in like other domains. I'd actually like to try it out with like, I tried cooking this like thing, but it tasted bad. What did I do wrong? You know, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Try it out. I did ask it for a healthy, spicy chicken recipe, and it gave like mm. a really long answer with, you know, 10 different ingredients and nine different steps. I haven't actually made the thing yet, so we'll see how it, how it turns out. But yeah, be careful with that because it's kind of insane sometimes. Like it, it, it says stuff that's, that's pretty nonsensical, but it's often difficult to catch why it's nonsensical. So yeah, long, be, I'm looking for terrible. words like arsenic or whatever in the, yeah. <laughs> in the list, but if it doesn't taste great, my palate's not particularly sophisticated anyway, so that's fine. Sure. But from, from the frontier, let's go all the way back to the beginning. So we're talking about a logical calculus of ideas imminent in nervous activity. When was this paper written? What was the point of it? I got the sense, you know, I, I've come to, to expect that we're reading AI papers here and I got the sense that they were just trying to figure out formulas for kind of how the brain does yeah. things. Uh, yeah. and so was this like a neurology paper? How did this paper come about? And then yeah. how did it turn into the kind of beginning of everything that we're seeing now? Yeah, this, that's, a, that's a really, really great question. And like you said, this paper is basically from the pre-history. So, you know, this is a paper, it's being published during the height of the Second World War. 43 was arguably the peak a year for that entire conflict. What we're seeing here is, like you said, it's an attempt to mathematically model the brain or mathematically model how human cognition actually works in like a practical physical mathematical sense. It's one of the first attempts to say, well, this is what's actually going, going on because we're at a point in history where it's been accepted that, okay, the brain is like some physical system. It's not, you know, some magical device that gets signals from somewhere else. It's not something that's non-physical. It's a real part, existing part of the world. And so people have this idea now in their minds, okay, if like, if it's a physical system, when we're getting better at modeling all these other physical systems, can we somehow model the brain to figure out what it's doing? And so, you know, in modeling the brain, once you have a model of something, of course, you can make predictions, which means you can understand how it works. And you can see why psychologists or neurologists would be interested in this, because if you get a handle on how thinking works. You can start to think about, well, how can we, you know, help people who might have something that's going wrong with them? How can we make people overall happier? Because we have this great little model of the brain. And so this paper introduces what is now probably like the absolute bedrock of AI systems, machine learning systems, which is the neural network. Although it wasn't called that yet, although they were referred to as neural networks in the paper. Yeah. Um, this introduces a little guy called the perceptron. And the perceptron is just probably the minimal neural machine learning model that it's possible to have. 
And it takes what's called the connectionist approach. And the connectionist approach basically says, if you look at the structure of the brain, it's these neurons and they've got all these connections in between them. So whatever is happening in the brain is due to some combination of neurons firing along these connections, causing other neurons to fire. That's the connectionist idea. And so this was the first attempt or one of the first attempts to formalize that idea in a mathematical framework. And again, it all comes from the scientific culture at the time, which says actually everything is rational, everything's a physical system. We actually can reason about it with all these great mathematical tools that we're, you know, have been developing now, like mathematical logic, like control theory, um, which gave rise to all sorts of things post-war as well. And this this paper coming from from a psychologist is an attempt to model the brain, basically. It's 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 let's put the brain on, on like a formal footing so we can analyze it with all this great formalist machinery that we have. That's where the idea comes from. So I think we'll jump around between yeah. the history and the paper itself. What did it then take to like turn this into the first attempts to build a neural network in the computer? Because I know at one point in the yeah. paper, they say essentially like one of the realizations here is that the brain can't do anything that like a Turing machine can't do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's 43. Most of the computers that exist, I think actually all the computers that exist at the time were secret. I think there was what there was Colossus, and I think there was maybe another one, but they were secret machines. Nobody like there, nobody knew they existed. They're like used for code breaking in, yeah. in the UK, or used for computing various things for the Adam projects. Um, but none of them are like public knowledge, right? So this paper, like the the author, is actually very prescient, even connecting this idea to computation. Yeah, because this is a mathematical model, and then the the author is already thinking about well, how do I actually run this model? And it took until, until I think the early fifties for somebody to like instantiate this in hardware. So this paper as written is, is purely a mathematical exploration into the possibilities of a model that looks like this. It's completely different to what we do today where it's like, yeah, I've got some intuition. Let's plug it in, get some layers going, train it and see how well it does. And this paper is much more about like, okay, theoretically, what properties does this thing have? Right. And what does that say about the brain? If the brain works like this. So purely like purely just sitting there and thinking about it as opposed to running it and seeing the output. Yeah. If the brain works like this, seems like it's doing a lot of work and they do make a bunch of assumptions in the mm -hmm. paper. How does it all hold up? Like we obviously haven't figured out how the brain works now. Yeah. How does it hold up? So the problem is it doesn't really capture the function of the brain. The brain is very complex. For example. The model given here is, is a purely feed for forward model. It's pretty obvious that the brain is recurring. Like later, you know, prop, waves propagate backwards and forwards and in between neurons in lots of different directions. Whereas this model, like, it just goes in one direction, right? Um, so it doesn't really capture the function of the brain too well, but it turns out that this is a great foundation for just machine learning in general. It's just, we definitely didn't know that at the time. That wasn't the aim. The aim wasn't to create like these fantastic models that can learn about the world and then we can use useful purposes. The aim was to really try to put this mathematical framework on the brain. So in that, it doesn't work very well, although it was, you know, it started, was the first idea that anyone had. Um, but from a practical perspective, it's been very, very useful, except it took a very, very long time to go from this to like the neuro, the modern neural models we have today. And there's a lot of full starts. There's a lot of things that went wrong between here and there. Yeah. We can get into the, the AI winter, but here's this, the quote that I was saying. They said, it is easily shown first that every net, if furnished with a tape, scanners connected to a furnace and suitable afference to perform the necessary motor operations 
can compute only such numbers as can a Turing machine. Second, that each of the latter numbers can be computed by such a net and that nets with circles can be computed by such a net and that nets with circles can compute without scanners in a tape some of the numbers that the machine can, but no others and not all of them. So yeah. does the idea of it not, the brain not being feed forward, does that get thrown out there as well? Are there things that the brain can calculate that a Turing machine can't? Or does that, does that still hold? So the paper is claiming essentially that if the brain works like this, there's nothing that a brain can do that a Turing machine can't. That's the claim that they're making. And of course, it's actually kind of interesting taking a step back to sort of sociology of science as well. Like that was the hot thing to be talking about at the time, right? Like, you know, Turing machine, mathematical logic, computability theory was very, very, very interesting at the time. And, you know, it still is a very interesting field, but it's definitely not the driving force. Whereas in 1943, this was, these were very important open questions, right? Alan Turing himself was very interested in artificial intelligence and, and, you know, thinking about like, to what extent does our idea of mathematical logic actually entail all of the thought that humans can have or not? And so this paper is making the claim that if the brain actually does work like this, then we can totally run it on a computer. And today, would you say that at some point in the future, we'll be able to run everything the brain can do on a Turing machine or not? Yeah, I, we've spoken about this briefly in previous episodes. I've touched on it. My opinion, which has changed in the last two years, is probably sometime within the next 10 years, we'll be able to emulate everything we think of as like cognition or the intellect sometime within the next 10 years, maybe. I think the part that we're going to struggle with for a very long time is the parts of the brain that are responsible for sensory motor function. We talked about Marvick's paradox a while back, I think, uh, which just means that like catching a ball in an arbitrary situation is going to be way harder for us than like playing chess for or composing poetry or anything like that. Anything we think of as intellectual, I think we'll be able to read. Anything that requires interaction with the physical world, I think will take considerably longer for us to solve. Got it. That makes sense. In terms of the paper itself, are there things that we haven't discussed that you think are important or should we get on to like kind of what came out of the paper? I know mm -hmm. they list like nine theorems. Is there anything interesting in the math or have we captured kind of all of that yet? So the math is honestly fairly straightforward. Uh, it's nothing that like, today's undergrad couldn't sit down with and, and like really understand very thoroughly. It was unique at the time in the way it composed a lot of these ideas. And that comes from the aims that it was pursuing. And I think the most unique thing about it in today's context is like we talked about before, it was about doing proofs. It was about proving mathematically the properties of the system. Whereas in modern machine learning research, we, you know, it's very rare that anybody tries to do anything. It's more like, here it is, it works. Yeah. Uh, why does it work? Well, we'll figure that out later. We know that it works. Today. Here are perhaps like some intuitions about how maybe it works. And then two months later, some paper comes out, which is like, no, your intuitions were wrong. Yeah. But at, at the time that this was published, it was very much the, I, I don't want to say fashion, but it was definitely the social, the like sociology of science expectation that you would prove your claims. You would at least have some strong mathematical evidence for your claims, which is something that we moved away from quite significantly, especially over the last probably 15, 20 years. You have to remember that in the history of science, most discoveries, especially in, you know, in the physical sciences were preceded by like empirical experiments, right? We did experiments, we observed something, and then we tried to come up with a theory for how it works. That only flipped relatively recently, um, you know, in the early 20th century where, and I think the, the, certain of the greatest examples of these are like 
general and special relativity make these claims that it took us much longer to actually carry out experiments for to test the full implications of them, right? But the theory was right. It's probably one of the best tested theories next to quantum mechanics. Like every single measurement conforms with the theory. Yeah. But for a long time before, it was more like we'd observe some phenomenon, like test the phenomenon, poke it in probe it and see what variables matter to it and then come up with some model, some theory. Like electromagnetism is full of stuff like this. Um, even just unifying electricity and magnetism took a lot of empirical work. So I wouldn't say that it's better or worse. It's just a different regime. I think what's unusual about it is in principle, these things that we've built, these neural machine learning models, these deep, deep learning models are things that we built ourselves and now we're forced to study empirically. And that's kind of unusual. And the other thing is, is that they're pure abstractions. They're abstractions that we invented in the first place, you know, and they run on computers. They only exist as like ideas. It's, it's, they don't exist in the physical world in the same way. Um, but we're now we're sort of in this, in this empirical regime again, where it's like, well, we're looking at them, we're looking at what we're doing and we'll try to back something out like the scaling laws, right? Which we talked about last time, yep. which we don't necessarily have a theorem that says, yeah, this is what scaling law you get given this neural network data. It's more like, well, we observed this. We're pretty sure it's true. We might want to figure out why. Um, and that's where we're at now. And, and you know, we, again, I, I really want to reiterate that even in this thing where we're like studying things that we created ourselves, this keeps happening. Like the invention of, of powered controlled flight, the invention of steam machinery, we did exactly the same thing. We had to like observe it and then come up with, with rules and principles and then back out the physical reasons why things are the way they are. So that makes it's just nothing inherently unusual for us. Yeah. There's nothing inherently unexplainable about it. It's just that we've had more time to explain all the things that have come before and this is the new thing. And so like now we have to observe and explain. It's like, it, it's also ridiculously complex. It's got this complexified property in it where that's like, it, it's very difficult to sort of break these things down into their parts and study the parts and then have an explanation for the whole. Right. Like if you look at one little ReLU unit, you can't really learn anything about the network as a whole from just looking at that one unit. You'd have to sort of study its entire properties. And that's always difficult from a scientific perspective. It's sort of, it, you know, it, it took until the invention of statistical thermodynamics before we had really clear theories about a lot of thermodynamical processes, which are very, you know, important industrially and technologically, right? We had to have good explanations, but we didn't, couldn't get to those explanations until we were able to deal with thermodynamic processes as more than like looking at every single individual atom and looking at all the energy and to come up with statistical, statistical approaches. And I suspect that might be the case here if we're ever to back laws out for any of these things. We might have to come up with a statistical thermodynamics for neural networks. This is a non sequitur, but I think, you know, if, if you're going to be our teacher here, you have a wide knowledge of, you know, it seems like all the sciences, the history, like where did that come from? Like what was your kind of education in, in all of this? Oh. It's obviously not just focused on on computer vision or AI, there's like the history of the sciences and, and all of that. Yeah, like, history has always been something that I've been very interested in personally. My background is relatively unusual in that, you know, I was born in a country which de facto no longer exists, uh, which was the Soviet Ukraine. Um, and then I was, you know, I emigrated to a completely different context, which was Australia, and then I went to live in Germany. Now I live in the US. And I think just all throughout my lifetime, I've always been interested gaining context that I don't necessarily have transmitted to me automatically, culturally, like people who've lived in the places they've come from their entire lives. And so that's always made me very interested in it. I've, you know, ever since I was really a little kid, I've just voraciously read history, all kinds of history. And then more recently, probably sometime in the last 10 years or so, 
roughly around when I was in grad school, I was like, okay, well, there are some things about how science is being done that I'm not like, I don't agree with. I, I think that we're doing a lot of things wrong here. We're wasting a lot. And I, you know, and I set out to sort of understand why things are the way they are, how they got the way that they are. And for me, that meant looking back in the history and seeing like, okay, well, we are where we are today, but I know from all of my history that there are reasons that we got to be the way we are. And so I went back and looked in that and researched all of this. And it's actually kind of interesting, and this might tie into our next topic, but the AI winter is one of these things which is like heavily researched in sociology and understanding of science. It's very interesting from a sociological and historical perspective because it was sociological factors, most would argue, that caused the first AI winter, along, along with different technical things, but yeah. Which, so yeah, that's, that's why I care. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into winters in a second because I have a follow-up question here, but it seems like it's often sociological fact, like humans just act predictably irrational to use like the, the Dan Ariely term and they get overexcited and, and all that. I do want to ask one other thing because I think it ties back into the beginning of the conversation when we're talking about me just shortcutting everything and asking chat GPT and you going the opposite way, not just understanding the code, but understanding the history and how the science got here and all of that. How much is the context of all of that context? Is, is that like a fascination that you're just happy that you know those things now? Or how much does it actually play into the work that you do? How much are we going to be missing when we can get answers really, really easily? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a few papers over the last few years that have tried to address exactly topics like this one, right? And arguably the scaling laws paper was an attempt to address one of these things where it's like, we're all looking at putting more parameters in, but is that really what we should be doing? Um, so you can even contextualize the Chantillo paper like that. There's this famous blog post called The Bitter Lesson, which is about like, yeah, we keep spending time on like these methods where we like try to bake in more knowledge about the world into the networks, but that all turns out to be worthless whenever we make the networks larger. It's just better to make them larger. So that's the bitter lesson. And then there's another paper called like the hardware lottery, which says, yeah, we're doing the kind of research we're doing because that's the kind of hardware we have access to, but it might not be the right thing long-term, right? And how can we possibly go one way or another? And it like argues for or against that. I think the short answer is like, you have to pursue what you're interested in because that's the only thing that will give you enough energy to keep doing it. Yeah. Research work is really, really hard. Um, and you know, me doing a startup is it's also objectively pretty hard. So ultimately I think people pursue whatever they're interested in. And I think people get interested in hype ultimately. And I don't think that that's the worst thing in the world. I think it's just, it's just the fact of nature. You kind of want to be around people who are excited about something. And if everyone's excited about the same thing, that's what gets worked on. It does mean that we miss things. And I have this overall idea about scientific production in general. And again, this is you know, a huge aside, but I think that we could be funding much more radical research just across the sciences for very cheap. And the way that I always pitch this is if you compare like a PhD student stipend to a junior software engineer salary in Silicon Valley, it's like, it's nothing. It's minuscule. Yeah. You could fund 10 PhDs to work on whatever you want for the price of a single, for the price of a single junior software engineer, why aren't we just doing this way more? Um, and I've been trying to encourage people to do it. And I had a conversation with a gentleman called Donald Braben, who did this back in the eighties. He basically ran this independent research organization as part of BP, where they essentially funded people basically on vibes. Frankly, they were like reasonably like scientists who had done good, some good scientific work, but they had some radical idea that was not in the mainstream. And so they funded them based on the personal relationships, which is essentially vibes. 
And there was like three Nobel Prizes that they got out of that program. Um, it was like some ridiculous return on investment, except it's like not quantifiable as ROI. And eventually BP had a change of leadership and they shut out the program. But I think we should be doing just way more of that to avoid falling into these pitfalls where like the entire scientific edifice falls in one direction at a time. And we are seeing that a bit right now with AI and machine learning. The sort of the trigger for me is always when I see other slightly unrelated fields trying to shove their work into whatever the hypey thing is. So right now that's like machine learning, right? Yep. This is ostensibly a paper of mechanical engineering, but what we actually did was try to apply a machine learning algorithm to some mechanical engineering thing, right? A, a little while ago, it was like everything was nano science for yep. a while there. And then, you know, this happens also in startup, you know that, but like it, it happens in science too. That's that's fascinating. So let's let's go back to this this mm -hmm. first AI winter, right? So this paper is written in 1943. Computers are top secret, owned by the government, used to fight the war. Mm -hmm. Finally, in the 50s, people get their hands on them. And then I'm going to give you a quote uh, from 1957, a speech delivered by Herbert Simon. The speech was written by Herbert Simon and Alan Newell, talking about progress in the field that would later be called artificial intelligence. Simon said. On the basis of these developments and the speed with which research in this field is progressing, I'm willing to make the following predictions to be realized within the next 10 years. So by 1967, one, that within 10 years, a digital computer will be the world's chess champion unless the rules barred from competition. Two, that within 10 years, a digital computer will discover and prove an important new mathematical theorem. Three, that within 10 years, a digital computer will write music that will be accepted by critics as possessing considerable aesthetic value. And four, that within 10 years, most theories in psychology will take the form of computer programs or of qualitative statements. It is not my aim to surprise or shock you if indeed that were possible in an age of nuclear fission and prospective interplanetary travel. But the simplest way I can summarize the situation is to say that there are now in the world machines that think, that learn, and that create. Moreover, their ability to do these things is going to increase rapidly until in a visible future, the range of problems they can handle will be coextensive with the range to which the human mind has been applied. And we're talking, maybe that's like 20 years. So by 1977, they'll be coextensive. That I think is like the greatest quote ever to capture what happens in the hype cycle and the peak of inflated yeah. expectations. What yeah. was going on in 1957 that he could have thought that was at all possible, that, that would, all that so, would happen yeah. within 10 years? I think, first of all, we have to recognize that even in that statement, there are things going on outside of ML AI that made people very exuberant, right? Talked yeah. about nuclear power, which like was coming online. It was definitely working. Talked about the imminence of space travel. Okay. We hadn't walked on the moon yet in 57. We were getting there, right? It really seemed like this was an inevitable wave that would just keep going. You know, the moon was next, but we were never before had humans gone somewhere and then just never gone back. We've always just gone and stayed there. Yeah. Um, and so it looked like we would have inevitable interplanetary travel over the next couple of decades, right? So these huge things, they're just fundamental changes in what humans are capable of with respect to the world were just everywhere at the time. And it's reflected in everything. And you know, if you look at the advertising material from the 50s, which I think is a good capture of the zeitgeist, it's like you're trying to get people to buy products by tapping it care about it's all like space aid it's all yeah. like the future right it's like oh no it's like this product you know it's from the future but you can have it today was like the theme of a lot of advertising 
people were incredibly optimistic at the possibilities that technology would offer them. And so I think we have to contextualize the hype for AI as part of the broader hype cycle for technology as a whole. Nuclear power happened. Unfortunately, it wasn't that exciting. You know, we didn't get to, to planetary travel for a variety of reasons. Um, and AI didn't pan out the way that he says it does in the speech. But I think in context, one of the reasons why it was so bullish was because of that. Just everything going on around it. Now, the other part of that question is like, why did it seem that AI could be capable of these things being promised? Well, this is 57. So we had had the first like hardware implementations of these, you know, learning machines for Subtron. And it's kind of like today, it seems like, okay, it seems kind of inevitable. Like if it can learn a little bit, why can't it learn a lot? And then why can't it like learn to learn and just you know, you start using it? Some of these exponential growth curves were like- The singularity is near, yeah. Yeah, and the singularity is near. By the way, to sort of, to sort of bust Ray Kurzweil's bulls too much, but one of the favorite things that I've ever seen on the internet was going on Ray Kurzweil's website a little while ago and seeing the singularity is near 10th anniversary edition being advertised, which, which I got a really good chuckle out of. Um, well, the, he's, we'll see. It feels like things are coming, are catching back up to, you know, he had some predictions that yeah. were like 2040 or you know, yeah, like look, 2030s. Look, I, again, I can't, I can't bust this book. I can't bust this book. I think it's, I think it's not unreasonable. I just found that really funny. Yeah. Um, anyway. So yeah, like it's, it's kind of seemed like, okay, well, we have a learning machine. We've never had a learning machine before. And surely if it can learn a little bit, it'll just learn to learn better. Or we'll like figure out how to get it to learn better. And then it'll just inevitably learn until it's on par with us and, or, and like overmatches us. Um, that was the mood at the time. We're seeing a bunch of things at the time. We were seeing the possible, like this was the first time that machines were doing things that were exclusively previously the provenance of people alone without, um, without sort of machine augmentation. Cause in, in the past, what machines have mostly been for is like augmenting human physical strength. First yep. of all, like digging, digging a hole, like moving heavy stuff around. And then they became useful for communication. So they like simplified and, and, and extended the range of human communication through media technologies and radio. But this was the first, first time, like, you know, the human, like the actual productive part of what humans do, which was like, understand the world and then do something about it was being mechanized. And I think that's the other reason that, that it got so excited to go, wow, I'm like, this is happening for the first time. Ar arguably, it wasn't the first time, arguably, arguably like the research systems theory, which was also happening around the Second World War, was like an early approach to that. But all of these things were like synthesizing into this one big thing, which eventually became called cybernetics, which also didn't quite work out. But yeah, I think that's that's part of the reason. Like every time something happens for the first time, it's 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 incredibly exciting. People get hyped. I actually think Elon Musk um, talked about this recently, where he said like the things that people care most about are like firsts and superlatives. You want to be like, no one's ever done this before, and also it's the best thing in the world. And that kind of that kind of how it was developed at the time. Yeah, no, it's and it's funny. I mean, like, as we are in 2022 now, some of this stuff might happen, but also like nuclear's making a bit of a comeback. People are getting early hype about fusion, although there's a ton of debate about how far we are from that and whether yeah. it's, it's ever going to make sense. Um, and says we're going to be actually doing interplanetary travel for the first time within a decade or whatever his timeline is there. So it's funny how much everything runs right. and how things I think, you know, like I write about this stuff all the time. I, I think we're going to be able to do some of this stuff in the next decade yeah. or two. 
But am I as I wrong think, as they were then? Yeah, I think it's possible if you look at the history and, you know, it's dangerous to just look at historical precedent because today is not the same as yesterday, right? But I think inevitably what happens is the short run capability gets overstated and then the long run capability gets understated. We, yeah. It's very difficult to predict the impact of any given thing, I think is, is what it comes down to here. Um, which is issue, which is justifiably why a lot of people are actually worried about AI safety. Um, like, well, this is really hard to predict, but it does have this chance of going horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, so maybe we ought to like spend more time with this than we have with other similar technologies in the past. But ultimately, I think it's just hard to know what's going to happen. But you're right. Like the mood right now does feel a little bit similar. It does, um, which is which is great. I, I I want us to bring back you know a little bit of that that optimism. Yeah. But I do wonder if we're if we're that. You know, people are kind of like, all right, the AI is finally here. Like it, it finally arrived. And I, I'm <laughs> sure, you know, that's probably how a lot of people felt then as, as well. Yeah. So it is just, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Well, how did it in the fifties, how did the hype manifest? So now it, it manifests mm. through VC and through a lot of people talking about stuff on mm. Twitter. How did it manifest back then? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the big differences between now and then was the promise of AI was one, only one of like several things that like people collectively were promised. And I'm not sure how much attention the average person really paid to AI as opposed to all these other technologies, right? Um, a rocket is like a big, exciting, fiery thing that you can see. And I'm like, you know, AI is like this kind of thing that nerdy computer guys talk about. Like, which, which one do you think is cooler? You know, yeah. as, I drive my, as I drive my Thunderbird down to the mall house, right? So I think mainly it was the research community which was like most excited about these things. And it like, there seemed to be so much useful, good work out there to just go out and do. Uh, and so people were like trying stuff. They were thinking about it. They're like, how are we going to get this to work? Um, it was also very concentrated in relatively few places. Computer science saw an explosion right around this time, but at the time it was still a relatively small number of people. Like physics enrollment was much, much larger than than CS enrollment at the time, because of course CS also belonged exclusively to mathematical logic at the time, or almost exclusively, because computers were not like a machine that was in everybody's house and anyone could play with. It was like, no, it's this giant bank of like wires and switches that you have to like plug into. And like a program was something you wrote out on a piece of paper and then you would hand it off to your, uh, to your secretary who would like type it up, type it up into punch cards. The first programmers were almost all women for that yeah. reason as well. Um, so it was mostly, yeah, I think mostly in the research community. Um, but it was like this great drive, like, it was almost like people took one step too far. They were like, well, it seems inevitable that we're going to have learning machines and this might be the learning paradigm. What should we do once we have them? Since they're obviously coming, right? I think that's how it probably seemed at the time. And a lot of big promises were being made as well. And it kind of leads us into the first AI winter. One of the other ways it manifested was that the DOD started spending. So instead of VCs rushing into whatever founder has an AI startup, but they want to do X, Y, or Z, <laughs> it was the DOD saying like, can you please translate all this Russian or I guess it was Russian at the time. Can you translate this Russian into English? And they're like, yeah, of course, of course. And then they couldn't really. Let's talk about AI winter a little bit. What actually happened? So there were a lot of promises being made. And of course at the time. Like you mentioned, a lot of the applications for these systems seem to be in defense. Uh, so it's the height of the Cold War. The Russians have put a, a man in space. The Cuban Missile Crisis has has happened. Like the, the Berlin Crisis 
has happened, which is one that people forget about, but that there, you know, there was a pretty big chance that that, that could have gone hot as well. Um, you know, the Berlin airlift happened, all these things, the Korean war. So the DRD had like needs of, of these systems and so much of other parts of defense were starting to be automated and mechanized. So like I said, control theory, control theory comes from around World War II, which was like, how do you aim, how do you aim an anti-aircraft gun so it actually like hits its target? How do you do that automatically? Because you can't rely on human gutter all the time. Or how do you get the plane to fly itself properly so that you can drop the bomb on where the, the like um, bomb target is, right? So more and more of this stuff is being automated and like connected into these communication networks because pretty early on the DOD realized that like whatever the war is going to be like in the future, it's going to be much more complex in network than it was in the past. And so for them, automating as much as possible was an important direction and AI kind of slept really into that, right? And yeah, translation was this task they really, really wanted done. Like signals intelligence is something that computers had already been used for. Like, you know, Colossus was for cracking Enigma, which was the German code book, the German code machine um, in the Second World War. So this idea of like automatic signals intelligence was already there. It was like kind of imminent. But again, they wanted automatic translation because you have to wait for translation. That information may not be relevant anymore. There's only so many people who spoke Russian, right? Um, and so that was like an application that they really, really wanted. They also wanted like automatic document processing too. They wanted what we now call optical character recognition. They really wanted to be able to like scan a document by a computer and then have it spit out English. Um, really quickly because time matters in these loops. Yeah. And it didn't work. Uh, it, it didn't work and other things didn't work. And we, we ran into the first day I went to where like all the funding started cold and people like stopped researching it. Um, not completely, not completely. Fortunately, it didn't completely die out. Otherwise we probably wouldn't be where we are today, but certainly from like its peak hype cycle, where these predictions were being made about being able to generate music in like by 1967, certainly that didn't pan out. Um, and we hit the first AI winter. So what happens in the AI winter? I know there's books being written that were like the perceptron is BS. This is a really important book. Um, it actually wasn't the perceptron is BS. That wasn't the aim of the book necessarily, uh, but it was very influential for that. The actual thing that the perception book from Minsky and the other authors what it actually said is a single layer perceptron by itself is limited in what it can do. And the reason that they were make, they were pointing this out was because multi-layer perceptrons were computationally extremely expensive at the time. So they wanted to show that like, yeah, like fundamentally a one layer version of this isn't going to do great. It was more like, you know, it, the, the thing that they brought up is like this XOR problem. Um, it showed that a perceptron, a single layer perceptron of a certain topology, uh, which by the way, was not a fully connected one either. It was like, it was so-called locally connected one, um, cannot solve what's called the XOR problem. The XOR problem is like, you know, you know, what the exclusive war operator is, but in case, in case the audience doesn't really know, it's, um, logical operation where its inputs have to be different for the output to be. So in other words, if you have two inputs, um, one, one would be false, zero, zero would be false, but zero, one or one, zero would be true. And in this book, they showed that, well, this kind of perception can't learn that. Uh, and what they were actually like, well, what Minsky has claimed since then to be, have been saying is, no, listen, if this limited type of perception, which is the thing that we know how to put on a computer, it's fundamentally limited. Um, we're, you know, we'll, 
And the implication is we'll need more. But the way that it was read, and I think you know, at the time where like things were being more disappointing than, than people had hoped for, like translation wasn't happening, or CR really wasn't happening, or like were some little toy things that they would try to put onto control systems and they didn't really work much better than just writing down the physics equation in the first place. Um, but people took it as like, okay, we have mathematical proof that this isn't going to work. We can stop now. And they did. And they like pulled funding. And they also didn't, so to your point about just how expensive it would have been to, to do it right at the time, they didn't have like the concept of Moore's law. Did they have something similar where they like could assume that it was going to get cheaper over time or did, was that not the way they were thinking about it? At the time, um, it was definitely thought that you had to make computers bigger to make them do more. Um, in 57, we did not have integrated circuits. Uh, they were on their way. I mean, people were working on semiconductors very hard, yep. but nothing like Moore's law existed at the time. We thought we would have to build bigger, more complex machines. Um, drawing ever more power, taking up ever more space, having an ever higher maintenance burden to, to do more with computing. Uh, we thought that it's, it's, it's unbelievable more. that the same era that that quote came from that we had talked about earlier didn't have semiconductors and thought that you just have to have these house size computers to be able to do it. But it was this. default. It's what we had. Oh, totally. It's, it's just it's just crazy. Yeah. We had ENIAC and Maniac and all these guys, and these were like rumor size machines. Right. And like making them programmable through plugging in like different plugs. That was a huge advance. Because before before that, like it ran a program. Yeah. Like the computer was a program. It didn't do anything else. You couldn't get it to do anything else. Um, and then by using the plug switches, you were actually able to program it. You were able to give it a um give it a state transition table and then later on punch cards, which by the by, by the way, punch cards are a fascinating story in and of themselves. Um actually come from uh, knitting looms. I'm sorry, weaving looms, weaving looms. Um, from a long time ago, the Jacquard punch card was one of the first like automatic uh, weaving machines. That's where punch card came from because you could program like what pattern you wanted. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the first, it, it, nominally the first programmable device was, was a loom. Um, Wild. Yeah, anyway, um, so that's what we thought we would have to do. And, and like all of this stuff was very, very brittle. Stuff would break. The word bug, um, I'm not sure if this is true or not. It might be a apocrypha, but the word bug comes from literal bugs. Like a beetle would crawl into the system and like short circuit it and you have to find where a bug like fully short circuited the system. That's incredible. Um, How many people yeah, were working or... in computers or CS or whatever you'd call the field? That's a good question. Um, CS was two things at the time. One was really electromechanical engineering. So like, how do you make a machine do this? And the other one was like, logic, which was like, okay, I'm going to like think about how to encode a procedure into, into the language of the machine. And that was very mathematical logic focused. Cause again, you couldn't get computer time. You had to like sit there, write your proof and then like hand it off and hope somebody typed it up correctly. Um, so not many, certainly not, not even as a proportion of the total research effort compared to where it's been directed today. If I was to give an estimate, I would say maybe several thousand people worldwide, um, were working on versions of this. And, and, and like the best work was always, was like concentrated in, in the places that actually had computing machines. Yeah. And so we hit, very... the, we hit the winter. It's not for all of CS, but for, for kind of the idea of the perceptron, the idea of neural networks and computers thinking and making music and all of that. Like, yep. what did that do to the talent in the space? Like, where did people go? And then who held on? 
That's a really, that's a really good question. Certainly it like got winnowed down very significantly and people found other uses for the computing machinery than trying to make artificial intelligence. And fortunately computers stayed useful. Um, and that led us to like, keep working on them, uh, but no longer for the purposes of like doing AI, not that, not that they were really for that purpose in the first place, but like, certainly it wasn't oriented towards like trying to make the computer think it was more like, no, listen, we're good. We know this calculation needs to be done. We're going to make it do it faster and we're going to make it fit more memory so it can do bigger calculations for us. And so it can like everything that we know how to write down and define, we're not going to have it think, we're just going to have it do mechanical operations much faster, right? People focus on this kind of work. A lot of people return to pure mathematical logic. Um, in CS, like, you know, just proving nice, nice theorems and thinking about like logic itself. And there's a lot of really interesting math that came around. Um, people went to work in, you know, more traditional control theory. A lot of really great work was done there, especially by the Soviets, but also in the US. But AI as a unified discipline wasn't really a thing that stuck around until, you know, this idea of like expert systems showed up. Um, and expert systems, of course, is, is the opposite approach. It's, you know, symbolic computation where you have a bunch of rules. Basically you like take what a person would do, transform it into a table of if statements, and then put the if statements in a computer. That's, that's symbolic, yeah. you know, it's expert systems. And, and, and the thing about expert systems is they work. Expert systems did useful things for people, unlike neural networks, which never did anything useful for anybody at that time. This, and, and by now we're in the seventies, right? And so we have this idea of like rules engines for systems and, and, but they're doing things. They're doing useful business processes for things. They're doing useful things for the defense department, the government and do automatic translation, but they sure can do a lot of things that otherwise a human will have to do. And so uh, this like new paradigm of AI arose for the second time, which was now, okay, before we tried to get them to learn, learning is way too hard. Now we're going to encode every single piece of knowledge in the entire world in one machine. And that's going to be a doesn't feel doesn't feel as as scalable or nimble I, were there the debates back then between the two kind of systems where now it's like the, what we've talked about before is like is it if it can functionally kind of do everything that a human can do then it's artificial general intelligence whereas like this kind of feels like writing a really big script that does what a human might do yeah but it worked that's the thing the thing yeah. is that it worked and it's really easy to keep going when you're like when you can point to something and like no like it's working right now um, it doesn't really matter what your philosophical perspective is. Here's the thing that works and your thing doesn't work. Um, yeah. And what's the, the line that like something is AI until it starts working and then it's no longer, no longer AI. <laughs> I, I actually don't agree with that. I still need to write something about that, but, um, generally speaking, yeah, that's what people would say. Um, yeah, I think, I, and you know, so the, you know, the rise of expert systems and this kind of brought AI back the idea of AI back that, okay, you know, we, we can have machines that will emulate a human cognitive process. But it wasn't on a connectionist basis. It wasn't on the idea that like, we're going to like plug neurons into each other and they're going to have like different weights and fed signals and whatever. There was a bunch of work, um, still going on in the connectionist paradigm, but more as like a toy than anything else. It was like a same research effort, like Huffield Nets, um, because again, it was like this idea was like, okay, we have all this great mathematical machinery, which is intended like physics and math, but we can like, we can make statements about machines that behave like this. Um, and so people like kept working on it as object of interest, but not in the mainstream, not as like a thing that you want to productize, not as a thing that like gets you to AI. It was more like, oh yeah, here's like a Hopfield net. It has all these neat properties that we can, you know, we can use these things from physics to understand. Um, and the compute still wasn't there. Yeah. That's the other thing to remember. The compute still wasn't there. It took a very long time to get us to where we are today.
and, and a lot of systems on, on the expert systems, what were like the types of things that they were doing? Yeah, like business process automation. It's, it's the big one. If some kind of input comes in, it's like, oh, it's like this form. Uh, somebody types in the form, does data entry, and then the machine decides what should be done and like spits out an answer. And that was based on rules that like by like just looking at what humans would do in any given situation and then encoding all the rules and then it would automatically like follow all the rules. That's what they were good for. Like things like insurance, banking, um, plenty of stuff in, in like defense follows that thing. Like you need to follow a checklist and make sure everything is where it's supposed to be and relies on, you know, data entry. Uh, you, it's very difficult to do OCR with an expert system, although people definitely tried. Uh, so you have like a, a human like typing the input to the machine, the machine like does the thinking part and then it spits it out and the human just carries out the task. Um, so anything that there's, can look like that in principle. There's, was, Deep Blue was an expert system or no? Deep Blue is a really interesting case. Deep Blue is nominally an expert system. It is an expert system combined with a very efficient for the time search among the space of possibilities that the expert system like could evaluate basically. Um, so yeah, it, it is, but it's a special one. It's a specially optimized one. So going down the expert system path would have given up the four things that they predicted in 1957, except for kind of chess, if you count Deep Blue as an expert system. I mean, you know, it, it, I think I think it's reasonable to say that, yeah, like chess was first, like the first, at least human grandmaster level playing computers were, were expert system based computers. They encoded as many different roles as people could think of, of like good chess games. Uh, or like how to play chess well and then make it look ahead in a very efficient way and then evaluate uh, what it could see in a very efficient way. It's been known for a long time that the way, especially very high level chess is played by humans, it's not that they think like a hundred moves ahead. It's that they only see the best moves. If you speak to like grandmaster level chess players, that's what they'll tell you. They're like, yeah, I'm not, it's not that I'm predicting a hundred moves ahead. It's like, I don't even think about the bad moves. But deep blur at like, it, it evaluated every single possible move for like many, many moves ahead. Uh, so it wasn't really playing like a human and arguably most of our like modern game playing AIs play much more like a human does where they're like, they have in some sense an intuition that it's not that they need to look so far ahead and figure it out. It's more like, oh yeah, I've seen like a board state like this before. Here's what I think. Or like, they'll do, they'll do like crazy stuff that I would imagine deep blue, like they'll sacrifice pawns that a human wouldn't or like a rook that a human wouldn't or and deep yeah, blue I mean, was like, just saying like this is my best move based on every possible move from here on out in the game yeah yeah and you know branch and bound as well as like they weren't they'll, they'll like cut off obviously bad stuff right. but according to like human expertise not according to a data-driven approach um which is how like all the all the modern sort of self-play based ais work um yeah so like expert systems but expert systems kept the idea at least of ai alive, um, huge investment in them as well. Uh, the Japanese government in particular, because at the time, like, especially Japan was an economic industrial powerhouse, right? And already a big part of, let's say Japan's brand for want of a better word was like, this is a country that's in the future. Yeah. Right. Like they have insane, crazy stuff that you just can't get anywhere in the West. They're like decades ahead. And so they're like, okay, well, why shouldn't we build a supercomputer that like knows everything in the world? Uh, and they invest a huge amounts of money in this. And it, and it turns out that you just can't do it. You can't do it because the world is like fractally complex. You can't do it from a, you can't like encode everything about the world in an expert system perspective. I think the other thing that was sort of happening at the time and still gets talked about today, and I think it's actually kind of more important. We give a credit for right now in research 
is symbolic computation. So what symbolic computation is, is like you have a set of symbols, you have rules for manipulating the symbols, but the symbols are interpretable as things that humans care about. So the class, like the, like mathematical logic is exactly like that. Mm. Mathematical logic is just symbols and a bunch of rules for manipulating the symbols, but it sort of happens that the rules and the symbols map onto concepts that we as humans care about. They have an interpret, what's called an interpretation. And so symbolic computation is like variance of that. Where you like have symbols, you have rules for manipulating the symbols and you start with somewhere and you, you end up somewhere else. Symbolic computation, symbolic AI was like the thing that kind of was arising. It was like, okay, well, what we have to do is not necessarily make a giant table of rules for everything that could possibly happen in the world. We just have to find the, like the right set of symbols and the right, um, rules for manipulating the symbols. And that'll be AI. Um, that was, that was also like a, a fairly strong research record. It was about, which is actually probably the most classical approach to AI as well. Like a Turing machine, that's what it does. Yeah. And, and you know, Alan Turing's idea was like, okay, it's like symbolic computation. It's not, it's not an expert system. It's not this connectionist thing. It's, it's symbol manipulation ultimately. That's what people think during their heads. And there's a, a lot of work in philosophy that is similar. Like what is language? Well, is it symbol manipulation? Yep. Um, so that line and stayed alive, but the connectionist approach like was not popular. It wasn't the thing that people were really working on for a very long time. Except, except in these like toy examples. So where did the connectionist approach rise and mm -hmm. expert systems and symbolic no. crash? Yeah. I mean, expert systems, again, like kind of overpromised that they didn't overpromise quite as much, but like this idea that, oh yeah, we'll just encode the entire world in a set of rules and then we'll have a very efficient computer that can evaluate those rules very quickly. Um, not workable, not really feasible, not least because like. Humans cannot perfectly encode rules about the world. Uh, we, we have never been able to do it. And it's wait, we have. so at this point, just for the, kind of the same kind of context that we had before, the way that the hype is manifested is not just probably the DOD and, and international defense, but it's like large corporations are also investing yes. in this stuff yes. now. Maybe not yeah. DC as much, but like large corporations and, and governments. Look, we have, semi, we have semiconductors now, right? We have mainframe processors that corporations can just afford. Yeah. Um, we even have mini computers now, which is like a computer that you have in your office instead of a terminal that's living somewhere on site. Um, it's like a mini computer that you might have on your floor. It's still the size of like a refrigerator, but there, right. And you can afford it. And so people like are, are trying to get useful things out of these things. And, and so the idea was like, okay, well, look, we're solving all of these things. And again, they're like human things that traditionally a human has done. Now a machine is doing it. Surely it's inevitable that soon everything humans can do will be done. Machines, yep. right? That's the feeling that people got again. I think in the seventies, you have to remember there was the chip revolution, like more and more stuff became digital. Um, and I think that that's sort of that parallel technological optimism about, oh, everything's going to have a chip in it. It's, it's going to be chips. It's all going to be smart. It's all going to be miniaturized and smart. Miniaturization was the other big like way. Yeah. Like everything seemed to be getting miniaturized. Everything seemed to be getting better and smarter. And so they were like, okay, well, like something like Moore's law, um, might exist now, right? And I think Moore's law was actually coined to write around then, which is like, yeah, like obviously the computers are inevitably going to get smarter, like faster and smaller. Uh, and if we like keep putting rules into them and they're getting faster and smaller, eventually they're going to have every rule in the world and we'll have AI. It sounds great. Um, didn't happen. Didn't work out. Yeah. But again, it was probably like beating our heads against specific tasks. Like machine translation, you can't do it in a rules-based way either. It doesn't work. Hmm. Um, like every attempt at machine translation that has come from a linguistics perspective, a rule-based linguistic-based perspective has failed. Are we talking about failed on like 
edge cases or like things that a local person would know. Yeah, like just just like normal translation. Like, got it. Very often, just produces gibberish. The the success cases were much much rarer than than the failure cases. The failure cases were very ordinary. Best we sort of can do is like digital dictionaries. it's it's yeah. funny too. Like again, like I, I get the sentiment that that of course, like these curves keep coming down, and we'll just get to the spot where it's so cheap and ubiquitous and mini, and what that we can just make all the rules. But I, I probably used a computer for the first time, call it what you know, when I was in first grade or something in the early early nineties, and it was like floppy disks, command line. Like it, it's wild to think that ten years, fourteen years, fifteen years before that whatever the computers were then people were like, yeah, obviously, inevitably we'll just be able to put everything in here and it will be able to yep. model the whole entire world well enough that we can use it to make predictions and all of that kind of stuff. It didn't come about, but computing, like computing hardware kept getting pushed forward, um, until, you know, we had the personal computer, um, and then we went beyond that as well. And suddenly what started happening is like, well, People were starting to be able to test out these connectionist ideas at, it's still a very minimal scale, right? But sufficiently, like, we could run some algorithms now. We could, like, test more of these ideas out, except in, like, these extremely minimal toy examples that didn't really show you anything. Now we could try some stuff. Um, And the other thing that happened, of course, at the time was digital imaging became much more mainstream. It became possible to create these data sets. Like, one of the first data sets was these... um, the zip code data sets, like MNIST, um, were like, yeah, the, the, the like handwritten zip codes, um, because the post office really wanted a, an automatic system for like sorting mail. Right. So they wanted like, they wanted an optical character recognition system yeah. to recognize zip codes throughout them. So they created this data set research work on it. Um, and so digital, the fact that you could put images in the computer pretty readily at the time, um, CCDs became like more, much more common. Digital cameras, much more common. Digital cameras like existed research and defense long before you could like take a photo. Yeah. Um, and we had enough compute now to like try some of these things. And backpropagation happened. Backpropagation is, is like the next important advance in the connectionist paradigm of machine learning. And backprop is the algorithm that we've discussed in the previous two episodes where basically you, the model has an output. You compare the output that you wanted with the output that you got using what's called a loss function. And then you take the derivative of the loss function back to the weights, and then you update the weights of the model um, appropriately, basically. And backprop is that algorithm. It allowed you to efficiently, efficiently compute each of those derivatives going back through the network. So suddenly you are able to like realistically run a two-layer perceptron and train it on a computer which actually exists. And so people are like, okay, we know we try this stuff out. Cause like I said, people have been working on this stuff as, um, as, um, toy models for a while. And so now, you know, now there's at least like a, a sliver, a tiny amount of research that you could do. You, you've done hundred days of code. So, you know, you're familiar with how important it is to have like a, a rebel, how important it is to be able to like write a piece of code and like try it out and see if, yeah. if it keeps you in flow, right? Research is kind of similar like that. If you can get fast iteration going, you can maybe get to a conclusion faster than you could before, as with like sitting there for like five years thinking about it, trying it one hundred percent work. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these things come together, and like you just have this slight, tiny, tiny sliver of progress, and you, you keep running into problems. But the problems keep getting solvable. So it's like the first thing is like, okay, well, we keep noting, like we keep having this problem of like unstable gradients. We can't really train 
especially deep network. But if you do like these two or three other things, you can like regularize it in a regular way. Turns out you can. Turns out you can totally train them. And then eventually you get to a point where we hit like, okay, the connectionist approach is like doing something. It's not totally useless. Like people have acknowledged it's not like, there, there might be a little bit of promise here. We don't know what it looked like. And so more researchers join it. Were these the same, like, were, were there any leftover people from the first Perceptron connectionist run? Or was this like Ooh. the Young Turks reanimating this old idea? I think mostly the latter case. Um, my history on this part is a little bit fuzzy about who, who's lab, like, actually kept going with this. But the thing about the connectionist approach is it has kind of a magic to it. It's this idea that, like, you can get very complex behaviors from a set of very simple rules. And for a certain type of person, that's extremely appealing. Um, certainly when I, like, when I first encountered neural networks, which was a long time ago, it was in 2009, I actually, like in, in undergrad in 2009, like I did a thing with neural networks, which were not at all popular. Um, this is like very, very early. Like I, I did some stuff. I like did rap propagation and thing. I, I wrote like a whole presentation about it. Um, but to a certain type of person, it's very appealing to have complex behavior arise from very simple rules. Yeah. And the connectionist approach is obviously very, very simple compared to like the, the symbolic approach, um, rules-driven approach, expert systems approach. And so I think because it just attracts a certain group of people, as long as it can be worked on, it'll get worked on by that kind of person. That makes um, a lot of sense. And, you know, I suspect that they definitely went back to like the OGs and were like, listen, like what, what's really going on? Like, what do you actually know? They're like, well, here's some theorems. Um, and then because they were able to build on top of that, um, they just kept going. And so, and I think the like the breakout moment for what's now called deep learning was was um, Lynette or Alex Nett, which was like, wait a minute, image classification with a connectionist approach totally works. Like it totally works. It's got superhuman. Like it's not superhuman performance, but it's beats the shit out of everything else we've ever thrown at this problem. Not by like a little bit, but like it dominates. When was when was Alex Nett? Oh man, I have to look that up. Um, let me check, Alex Nett. Up Wikipedia real quick. Yeah. Uh, uh, September 30, 2012. Wow. Should we, should we do, because this feels like the beginning now of this the piece. next era? Yeah. Should we, is, is there, should we do AlexNet next time? Because I've, this is something I've heard of. Is it interesting enough? Where do we go to start off this next era? Let's, yeah, I think AlexNet would be good to start the next era. I think our next episode could be another cutting edge thing. I think I would actually yeah. like to cover WhisperNet and why it's cool. Ooh. Um, okay. Because WhisperNet is interesting in the field of audio. Um, but I think covering like the AlexNet era and everything that came just before and then what came just after is useful because that that's really... So we've talked about the prehistory now, right? We've yeah. talked about the Perceptron and, and, and like the really early state. What we should talk about now is like the proximal history, I think. And I think AlexNet and, and like Jeff Hinton, Jan LeCun, who I ran into the other day at Europe's, by the yeah. way. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, I think that would be worth talking about in a, in a future episode. And, and then, like, I think AlexNet is really the thing that, that kicks off where we are today. Everything that exists is now from, from that time and, and probably owes some depth to it. And, and I think yeah. also we should talk about Jürgen Schmidt-Huber, um, which we can also talk about in that era. He, yeah. he has a lot of contributions, as, as he likes to remind everybody constantly. Um, but yeah, like we survived these two AI winters. We survived the connections to AI winter. We survived the 
expert systems AI winter. And now oh, we're in like definitely connection is summer, but how long is that going to last? It's unclear. Uh, and if you ask Gary Marcus, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's time is coming. So we'll see. Oh, wow. That's a cliffhanger. Yeah, what, what's the argument that the time is, is coming? Well, it's, it's, it's more of a feeling, right? Like for a long time, people have been banging on the walls of the connectionists. And the thing is, is like, like with expert systems, right? It works. The best proof that you have for your thing being right is that it works. But for a long time now, people have been banging on the walls of the connectionist approach being like, listen, you're actually fundamentally limited. You're fundamentally limited because it doesn't have this, this, and this, and this. And those debates rarely get anywhere because what happens is GPT-4 gets released. It's like, well, it works. Yep. Or like chat GPT gets released. It's like, well, yeah, you know, you can tell us you, we've got limitations, but we're just going to do it. And we're not really going to listen to you. But here's the thing. Remember how we've been talking about how GPT and its derivatives will like readily generate nonsense? Yep. Like it will generate nonsense for you really easily. It's, it's not hard to get it. And we saw that with like Galactica as well. Yeah. When it came out, like it was really easy to get it to generate like fake science papers or like ask it for facts that are like untrue. Uh, and it will like keep predicting it. And these are right now possibly fundamental limitations, possibly not fundamental limitations this approach because they all rely on like simple prediction without encoding any understanding of the world, except that at, like in like some abstract sense, right? Like if you can predict something, you probably have some kind of understanding of it, but you can't tell what's true or false if you're just, if you're only making predictions. And so one of the big arguments from the symbolic people um, is that, well, the only way you're going to encode like logic or like deductive knowledge into these things as opposed to inductive knowledge, which is what predicting is, is by ha by like grounding them in some kind of, some kind of affordances that understand the world and, and, and like the different relationships in it instead of pure empirical prediction. Unclear because like I said, I was well, not expecting the symbolics to make a, a comeback here. It's something, cause that one feels like it's more like logic has been, you know, we're going back to the ancient Greeks and maybe earlier, like. Has something changed there that makes it more likely than it was 40 years ago or 30 years ago, whenever it was last taught? I... Logic has, in a way, always been the foundation of artificial intelligence because, in a way, logic is what we think of as intellect. Yeah. It's actually a really important question about, like, where do we separate intellect from, from pure logic? If you look at AI textbooks, if you look at, like, Norvig, which is still the classical textbook in AI, Introduction to Modern AI, um, if you look at even Turing, like they considered logic a bedrock because that's what they thought most represents intelligence. Now we have these data-driven like empirical paradigms, but it doesn't really go away. It's more like we seem to be able to achieve more in the real world by not really thinking too hard about that right now. Got it. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe we're like, maybe we're at a stage where we're like the coyote over the edge of the cliff, right? And maybe these things where like GPT routinely produces nonsense are the first glimmers or well, maybe we can try something else there. Okay. But th there are still data-driven connections to purchase to, try to deal with that. Um, really common one is like reinforcement learning from human feedback. Like you get, you, yep. you just get people to tell you if you're saying nonsense or not. And if you're saying nonsense, we'll like try to stop you from doing that so much and, and like boost the part of you that says good stuff. The problem is, is that stuff is fuzzy. And yeah. symbolics is not fuzzy. Symbolics is like hard, like true, false, um, logical, 
laws, logical predicates, which we don't like, we, we don't really know right now how to encode into the connections. Like we can't guarantee anything. It's like, we think we can like prod it in the right direction. Spewing falsehoods feels way more human than logic and getting things right. I mean, we want to do better than that. Obviously we don't want something that we trust, you know, spewing things that are false, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. like, how do you encode truth when you don't know what's necessary? Well, let's true. go back. Yeah. This is actually a really good point to make. And I, I want to go back all the way back to the history of calculating machines for this one to Charles Babbage. Now, Charles Babbage is recognized as one of the first people to like build a computer or to like think about mechanizing computation. He wasn't the first, he wasn't the only one, but certainly he was the one that like is credited with a lot of work. He built a thing. Well, he started building a thing called the difference engine. And the reason that Babbage built this thing was because in his time, tables of logarithms, which are very important for engineering, um, constantly had mistakes in them because they were calculated by hand. And he was the sort of guy who really couldn't tolerate that. So he was like, I'm going to mechanize these things. I am sick of people getting it wrong. He also really hated street music, by the way. Um, he, 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 he found he the noise. Not, not liked going to Nerebs. Definitely not. Um, well, Gary Marcus isn't here either. Sure. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Babbage created arguably the first mechanization of what we think of as logic or computational cognition in order to avoid the human mistakes that were being routinely made. And like you said, like humans are prone to saying nonsense. Yeah. So in a way, one of the original purposes for trying to build an artificial intelligence was to build a system that was not prone to the same propensity towards like falsehood or, or mistakes that an ordinary human is. The whole, like one of the core ideas of trying to mechanize the intellect is so that we would have, we would have a machine that would help us that would make it. Um, I think the idea that we want to make that is very human and act like a human and has like the same things built in as a human is more recent than that. Um, Got it. It feels, and this is my like dumb outside perspective where I don't have to think about how you'd combine things, but it feels like the right, like the ultimate approach in 10 years or 20 years or whatever will be some combination of the two, like some way to make sure that you get the stuff that can be right, right. Yeah. And then there's plenty of stuff I mean, that you need to get in there that you can't have a true false on. I think, um, I think time will tell. I think if there's anything we've learned from like the history of AI winters is catching, like trying to predict the winning paradigm too far in advance, um, gets you into trouble. Amen. Well, I think that's a good place yeah. to, to wrap up. We will do whisper next. And then we'll go back, I think, throughout the series, uh, back into the history. But I, I like the idea of doing doing Whisper Next. What do you have? Are you, are you done? Or is there a bunch of other programming this weekend? Yeah, there's, there's a bunch more to do. I have, I'm taking a bunch of meetings for Chroma. Um, we're out here recruiting in Europe. Um, and so, yeah, um, still a bunch left here. And I am going to go on an airboat on Saturday and hopefully see some alligators. That'll be cool. There we go. Well, if, yeah, if, if you want to work at Chroma uh, and somehow have made it through my dumb questions, but are also really, really good at this, um, then go check out trychroma.com. I highly recommend working with Anton and Jeff. Thank you for doing this. Enjoy the, the rest of the weekend. Tell the alligators I said hi, and we'll be back next week with Whisper. Awesome. All right, Punky. Good to chat. Good to chat.